The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So this is supposed to be the second week of Advent. And there should be, right now, multiple candles lit up here at this moment. But in true form, Mitch, (laughs) who we greatly love, and we are thankful for his teaching gifts and his ability, um, has made this the first week of Advent, even though it's the second week. (laughs) And so uh, in honor of that, I'm going to light not one, but two candles. Now, some of you, I recognize, have not grown up in a tradition, maybe, where, um, where Advent is a thing. Uh, it's, it tends to be in more traditional congregations and not necessarily uh, our brand, our flavor, if you will, uh, of Christianity. But we, a few years back, decided to revive that within this church context for a specific re- reason, We recognize that in lighting the candles and in progressing through the story of redemption, moving towards the day of Christmas, that it builds for us all the anticipation of celebrating what God has done in sending his son. So each week we will be lighting a candle as we move closer and closer to the day that we celebrate the the birth of Jesus. And uh, today is Advent 2.0. Uh, as, we, as we begin to think and put our hearts and our minds in, in that direction and in, in thinking about the redemption that has come through Jesus. So we're building towards that final candle there, that final moment where we're, we're going to say, praise God that he has come. Amen? Today's Advent focus is on the fact that God sees. God sees. I'm going to give you three file folders by which we can kind of organize our thoughts as we go through things. And so three things that you, uh, you can write down for those of you who are note takers and continuing to uh, take seriously the, the need to be students of Scripture. And there's three file folders for you. First of all, God sees clearly. God sees clearly. Second of all, God sees compassionately. God sees compassionately. And thirdly, God sees redemptively. God sees redemptively. So God sees clearly. God sees compassionately. And God sees redemptively. I want you to imagine for just a moment... If you can, I think there's limits to our imagination. This is, this is going to be a challenging one. But I want you to imagine for a moment uh, the glory of the creation story. But I don't want you to just jump ahead to where, to where everything is already made. I want you to think about the time before that, a time before there was time. <laughs> a time before there was space. A, a time before there was, there was matter. There were no molecules. There were not elements. There was, there was nothing. All that there was was God. He was eternally coexisting as one God in three persons. And before God does anything to create, there somewhere before molecules and matter and, and time and space, God in himself made a decision. There was a decisive moment that took place before anything was made. He makes a decision to share and to express all that he is through creation. Now, he didn't do this out of loneliness. This wasn't done out of need. He wasn't lacking something, sitting there in timelessness and and without space and without matter going, gosh, I wish there was somebody else here. Because he existed within the Trinity. He had perfect fellowship and harmony within himself. 
since before anything was created. So it wasn't need that drove him. It wasn't loneliness that drove him. But out of benevolence, out of joy, out of love, God calculates the cost of redemption and begins the work of creating. And so as a consequence of this decision that he makes, we, we, we get little hints at that throughout Scripture, that, that before the foundations of the earth, God thought about everything that was coming. That he, it was in his mind. It was on his brain. And, and, he, and he went forward with creation anyway. And as a consequence of that decision, God speaks. And as he speaks the three persons of the Trinity begin to work in concert with one another in this, this holy and eternal dance. And, and the Father and His power is overshadowing creation. And Hebrews 2 tells us that, it, that, that the Son is present and everything that's being made is being made at the hands of the Son and by the power of the Word that became flesh. Genesis 1 tells us that, that the Spirit was, was hovering over the creation, giving shape to it. In concert, they, they work together to give form to all that is in the heart of God. And, 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 and by sheer consequence, everything that is made is in some way a reflection of who God is. It's, it's like an artist or a musician the work that God is producing is coming up from within, from Him, right? And in some way is, is reflective of who He is. It's reflective of the inner genius of the Creator. And God begins the process of creation. He, he creates angels and heavenly beings that rejoice in everything that He does like He does. He forms light that reflects the glory of his transcendence and his holiness. He creates planets and stars and quasars and comets as he fills his creation with plants and animals and bacteria and the, the elements that make up everything. He also weaves into it the impossible intelligence of interconnectedness of all of those systems. The biological system the laws of nature, the logic that runs the universe is all woven into the fabric of everything that he made and his wisdom is magnified. And then, as all of those laws begin to give form to creation and the molecules align themselves with the command of God, then, as he sets everything in motion, he then holds it and sustains it by his power and keeps it running. <laughs> by day six of creation, we don't even know what that means. We just we get this song at the beginning of Genesis. It's like, this is what it kind of looked like, but it's very poetic language. And, and, and by the time that the creation of animals and everything else has been done, God comes to this moment where he wants to do something different. From molecules to mountains and worms to wormholes, and God has made it all by the power of his spoken words. But suddenly he does, does something now at the pinnacle of his creative process that the Bible tells us even puzzled the angels. Instead of speaking something into being, God steps down into creation and he thrusts his hands into the soil. And he begins to gather the soil and the dirt. And he begins to sculpt from that a man, a human. Now, this man is lifeless. It's just clay sitting there. But after forming 
the man out of the dust of, gra- uh, dust of the ground. There is this moment. There's, there's a book that I read many years ago. I was trying to find the exact quote this morning in my library, but was una- unable to, to get that for you. But I'll, I'll, I'll give you the gist of it. It, it. It's an author who is imagining this creation story. And at this moment, after the clay is formed and, and the human body of what will be Adam is laying there, God has a moment where he is paused. And in that pause, he sort of looks down through the corridor of time. He looks down through all that will come as a consequence of what he is about to do. He knows that in breathing life into Adam, everything bad will come. Everything painful will happen. Everything hurtful and sorrowful and broken in the world will all come into being with one simple act when he shares of his own life with the dust of the ground. No wonder the angels were puzzled. No wonder they sat in awe at creation one masterful stroke after another, and now this new creature that God has formed is made to bear his image uniquely. All that God needs to do is is breathe life into the dirt. And in this pause, God considers the weight of all that will come. He sees the sin, he sees the sickness, he sees the disease and the suffering, and he chooses to go through it anyway. He knows that sharing his life with Adam will also ultimately mean he will share his son with Adam. He knows the pain that it will cost him to give life to the clay. He sees the suffering that the clay will endure. He sees that he will have to send his son in likeness to the clay to redeem the clay. And then, (laughs) with the heart of a loving father and with the heart of a warrior God, he presses into all that it will cost and he stoops down and he takes something from within himself and he shares it with the clay and man becomes a living soul. The Bible simply calls this his breath. But no longer is this just a creation of spoken words or of of rearranging the molecules that already exist to form some animal. This new sculpted clay carries in it the very image of God and shares something from God's being within himself that innately reflects God not only by, by reflection of image, but by nature, the capacity to love, the capacity to extend grace and be forgiving and worship and all of these things come from the essence of God, that breath that is breathed into the clay in the moment. And then God did something incredible. He began to be a father to the clay. And he takes him and he plants him in a garden and he begins to to talk to him and lead him and show him things about how to tend the creation that God has made. He named him and called him Adam and showed Adam the joy of a shared life by doing in Adam what God had done for Adam. God took of his own life and shared it so that Adam might become a living soul. And then he took Adam's life and he shared it that Eve might exist. And he said, now, now I want you guys to have life together. And for a season... For a season, everything is good. Everything is beautiful. 
until Genesis chapter 3. Now you guys, I think, if you've been around church, you, you know the story. Everything is good, and, and it's beautiful. And what's happening here with God sharing himself with creation is incredible. How overjoyed the clay must have been to know that, that the clay had something of God that nothing else in creation had. They had the very breath of God in them, giving them life. How, how privileged the clay must have felt to know that they shared uniquely with God his image, his life, his essence. But at some point early in the history of creation, the enemy of God begins to look for ways to share God's glory or steal God's glory. And the world that God had created under his authority the enemy, Satan, begins to say, how do I put it under my authority? How do I get the glory? His first major assault is in the heavenly realm, and now it comes to the earthly realm. And he comes after Adam and Eve. He tempts Eve to sin, and not long after that, Adam is also brought down by what theologians simply call the fall. It's called the fall because this life of goodness with God, the beauty of, of, of being his creation, the intimacy that is shared as God would walk with them in the cool of the day in the garden and was, he was a father to them, all of that is shattered and they fall from that place. And all of the world is thrust into brokenness. No, we've all likely heard the story of Adam and Eve's sin. I would, I would like to draw our attention to just one verse in Genesis chapter 3. As God is dealing with the sin of Adam and Eve, he says this, starting with the discipline of the serpent. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Serpent, because you participated in this and you've allowed the enemy to use you in some way, the curse is for you. And then he says this. I want you to see this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Listen. At the very moment that it all gets destroyed, at the very moment of brokenness, when fellowship is gone, at the very moment when all of God's good creation is shattered, by sin and by the fall, God makes a promise. He says, I see. I see that brokenness. It won't be broken forever. It won't stay like this. I've already thought about it. I already know what I'm doing. I already have this plan. I'm sending my son and he is going to crush the head of the serpent. I've already thought about what I'm going to do to repair what's been broken by sin. Guys, God sees. He sees, and he sees clearly. He sees more clearly than we could ever. He sees every individual sin and its ripple impact as it spreads out into the world. He sees the ways that, in which it affects families generally or generationally. He sees the ways in which disease will come in and the suffering that comes with it and how death would affect us all. He sees it all. And he already, at the very beginning, at the moment that it enters into creation, he makes a promise to us. And that promise is, I won't leave it broken forever. I'm coming to rescue God sees clearly. Second of all, God sees compassionately. 
you know, I, I think we all say, okay, God, yeah, God sees. And he sees how everything is going to work together for good. And that's, that's great. And those are wonderful promises. And that's, that's really, really good. But I, I don't see how it's all going to work together for good. What I see is the brokenness of sin. What I see is the hurt and the damage and the destruction and the death all around us. That's what I see. So while that might be great for God to know that plan, and and while he's given us these promises, my heart is still broken in the process. And this is where I want you to see that God sees not only clearly, but he sees compassionately. I think of a story just a few chapters over. If you have your Bibles open, you can flip over with me to Genesis chapter 16. We have the story here of of Hagar and Sarai. Now, Sarai doesn't have any kids, and her and Abraham, or Abram, have been given this promise that they would eventually have children. But for, after a long season of time, that doesn't happen. And so they, they kind of get their hands dirty. They're like, maybe, maybe God wants us to help him out. And so, so Sarai, as was the custom of the time, she says, I have this servant girl, and she could kind of act as a surrogate for us. And, and Abraham, you can go in unto her and, and impregnate her, and she'll have a child and, and bear a child to your name. Maybe, maybe that's how God's going to do it. So, Hagar, her servant, sleeps with Abram, and she becomes pregnant. Now, as a consequence of that, tension breaks out between Sarai and and Hagar. Because Hagar begins to look down on Sarai, and Sarai, who will become Sarah, begins to feel very jealous of Hagar, and as can happen in messy family situations, there is a competitiveness that goes back and forth, and Abram is called upon to resolve it. Verse 5, and Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Now, Abraham is called upon to fix everything that's broken in the family. But Abram passes the buck back, and he says, hey, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Now, when it says that she fled from her, she was running away from this situation with no intent, it appears, to come back. And then the angel of the Lord, which is probably a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, that is, an appearance of Jesus in the Bible before he actually is born as the babe of Bethlehem and, and, and lives his life here on earth. Now, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction, the the name Ishmael means God hears. God hears. And he says, that's what you're going to call him because I want you to be reminded every time you look at him that I heard your heart. I heard your crying. I heard you out here in the wilderness on your own. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And so... Having heard this prophecy and having heard the command of the Lord, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing, or El Roi, 
El Roy, the God who sees. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well where she was at, the spring where she was at, was called Bir Lahairoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And the name of that spring simply means the God who sees. The one who sees, the living one who sees me. Now, here's what I want you to take away from this. There come moments in all of our lives where we know that God is in control. Big picture, right? But then that report comes in or the job loss happens or, or, or a tragedy befalls or as a group or as a country, something happens like, like 9-11 or as a congregation, something happens like what we've been going through presently where you know theologically, big picture, big umbrella, God is in control, but presently your heart is hurting. Your heart is broken. And the idea that, that all of this is somehow going to be used for good doesn't solve the pain of the moment. And this is where God comes in and he says, I want you to see something else about me. Not only do I see clearly the end from the beginning, but I see compassionately. I enter into your pain. I'm there with you in it. I, I, am, I, I feel what you feel. My heart hurts for you. My heart is broken for you. Even though I know how I'm going to redeem all of that and use it all for good, I am with you in this moment of pain and suffering because your brokenness matters to me. I cannot help but think of, of how it is that God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush. I can't help but think of the ways that he talks about his experience of seeing the suffering of his people. And in Exodus chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, God says, uh, says to Moses, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to a place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Listen. God sees their pain and he's moved to action. It's not just that God sees and sort of logically knows formulaically the end from the beginning. Well, it's all going to be good because at some point I'm going to raise up a nation. He doesn't go there, right? In the moment of their suffering, he enters into their suffering and he is with them in the suffering. He sees not only clearly, but he sees compassionately. Last night at around 10 o'clock at night, I uh, got a phone call from my daughter. She was uh, reaching out and saying, hey, have you checked your phone? And uh, I hadn't. I had to put my phone down. And uh, so I pick it up to find that Mitch had been trying to get a hold of me. And uh, when I got on the phone with him, I, I found out that there had been an accident and that it was likely that Anthony Panter, uh, who is uh, our, one of the people that leads worship for us often, uh, 
We have a picture of him, if you could throw that up. Anthony Panter had been involved in a car accident and that there was a, a possibility that he did not survive that. As the night went on, uh, that fear became a reality. And we found out that our friend and our brother uh, is at home with Jesus. Now, as I think about Anthony, uh, I've had the wonderful privilege of, of being able to walk beside him through some of the most joyous and some of the most painful moments of, of his life, which was cut way, way, way short. Uh, two years ago, he and his wife, Lauren, reached out to me to be able to do some premarital counseling, and I, I didn't know them well at the time, but we have six to eight sessions of premarital counseling that we do, and during that time, there's lots of sharing and talking, and you know, you just, you get to know people and fall in love with them and their story, and, and then I had the wonderful privilege of, of, of sharing the pulpit on the day of their wedding with Lauren's childhood pastor from uh, Bear Creek, and, and, and as Anthony's pastor uh, to perform his wedding. Since that time, I've had contact with them and gotten to watch them choose grace and choose to believe the gospel again and again. And I've, I've watched as Anthony has employed his gifts for the kingdom. Uh, you guys will, will never know, I, I think, for the most part, the amount of labor that goes into to bringing together a Sunday service. Uh, especially in some of the times past where we had two services, you know, our worship team a lot of the times will show up at four o'clock in the morning to come and do setup here. They put up cables and they do things. They run through things together with one another. Anthony has faithfully participated in that and has had, and there, there's been no paycheck waiting for him. That's all just been service offered up to Jesus. He's led us in worship countless times. He has come in and, and, and stood before you guys and directed your hearts to the worship of God. He's been an example of faith. I have watched personally as Anthony has encountered deep, deep trials in his life. I've watched him cling to the gospel and trust that Jesus is the only defense that any of us have. And make choices in accordance with that, believing that the gospel is true for him and the gospel is true for those that he loves. And so I sit here this morning and I'm you know, racking my brain, like how do I share this with our church how do I uh, bring this to the forefront? And the, what do I say in response to these things? And I find here, and even what I've prepared this morning, a word of comfort for all of us. That God not only sees clearly, but God sees compassionately. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows, he knows that right now, Anthony is still leading worship. He knows that the gospel is enough. He knows that what his son did. I'm sorry. He knows that what his son did is sufficient. Thank you. Appreciate that. Here's the thing. God is not untouched by our sorrow. God is not unmoved 
As a matter of fact, it's just the opposite. It's moments like this where our hearts are broken, where we grieve. It's trials like the ones our dear brother and friend Jeff are going through right now and his family. It's it's ones like what we are facing as a church as we continue to move forward right now. It's those situations that God saw from the moment he thrust his hands into the soil. It is... It is those exact situations, it is that exact pain that God saw and he said, I've already got a way to redeem it. I already know how to enter into that battle. I already have a plan and here's my promise to you, I won't leave it broken forever. He sees clearly, he sees compassionately And lastly, he sees redemptively. In Isaiah chapter 9, God makes this promise in verses 1 through 7. It's a prophecy. And it says this, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. The former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. He says, okay, there's been a time where uh, Israel has been suffering, where my people have been suffering, but, but he's redeeming. He's making glorious the land or the region beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has a light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. And they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, now talking about a specific person, and the staff for his shoulder and the rod for his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. It's probably talking twofold, one about the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, but also talking about the victory that will come in the one who was born in the region of Galilee. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle and tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. There's coming a time where, where all the war and all the sickness and all the sadness is going to be done away with. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal or the passion of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here's what he's saying. I, I, I see the darkness, I see the pain, I see all of it. But I see it redemptively. I, I'm not going to avoid the pain to give you the good, but through the pain, I'm going to redeem it. Through the hurt and through the suffering and through sin itself, I'm going to redeem everything. Not with just a plan, but with a person. And he promises that he will give comfort through his son. 
And we all know this, right? We all know the benefits of, of what Jesus has given us. He gave us justification. We were made right with God because of his sacrifice. He gave us reconciliation. We were brought near to God. He gave us salvation. We were saved from the wrath of God as a consequence of what Jesus did. He gave us adoption and became our father once again, just like Adam in the garden. He gave us righteousness that was not our own, but was a gift because of his son. He, he gave us the comfort of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling presence, once again, of the life of God. And lastly, but certainly not least, through his son, you know what he gave us? The resurrection of the dead. That this life is not all that there is. That there is a new heaven and a new earth. And because the gospel is true, we will in our flesh see God. We will be raised from the dead in the likeness of eternal and heavenly bodies. And we will dwell with the Lord forever and ever. As we head to that moment where we celebrate the birth of Jesus, I would like to comfort and encourage you with this truth this morning. God sees, and he sees clearly. He knows all the pain that's coming. He knows all the circumstance, but that doesn't stop him from being compassionate. God also sees compassionately. His heart's break with ours. His heart breaks with Lauren's heart this morning. His heart breaks with Anthony's family and our worship team who's worked closely with him and his friends and our community, our household of faith who's been so faithfully pointed to Jesus by Anthony. And God is present with us in that suffering. God sees the sin and suffering of his people and God, who is eternal and sees how it can all be resolved and used for good, allows the pain of his people to break his own heart that he might enter in and love them well and shepherd them well in every season. From the beginning, God knew where it would all go wrong and he planned his redemption. Today, church, God is doing the same in the brokenness of our lives right now. And God is doing the same in the circumstances of our church body, even now. God sees clearly. God sees compassionately. And even at this very moment, God is working to redeem. As Mitch comes forward to lead us in worship, He's going to be singing a song um, that he felt was appropriate in honor of, of Anthony. And I just want you to hear from the heart the words of this song. I want you to, to take in the reality of its truth. And may it be a comfort to our souls this morning. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. You know, we came to this weekend with a plan already of what to share and no idea how deeply it would apply. Thank you for sending your spirit. Thank you for anchoring us to truth that holds us when the storms of life come. Thank you, God, that no matter what we face, that because of what you have done in rescuing us and because of your plan to redeem Lord, that we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. Thank you, God, that the promise is true that we have been justified, that we are redeemed, that we're adopted, that we're, we're made righteous. Thank you, God, that we are going to be raised from the dead bodily to be with you forever. As Anthony, even at this moment, is joining in the choruses of angels, we ask, Lord, I don't, know, I don't know if this is theologically right, God, but we ask, would you just wrap your arms around him?
Send him our love. Comfort his wife. Pour out your spirit upon his family. I know their hearts are hurting. God, be there in the midst of it. Come down into their pain the way that you came down to meet the children of Israel, the way that you came down to meet Hagar. You are the God who sees and let them know that you see. And as we worship you, with hurt, as we lift our hands, even in brokenness, as we surrender our lives once again to you, may our sacrifice of praise, may it be pleasing in your sight that even our pain offered to you is a sweet-smelling savor in your, in your nostrils, God. So, Lord, be honored as we lift our hearts to you. Be glorified in our worship of you. You are worthy, and our hearts are yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh. 
What a gift of grace is Jesus, my redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness, and free. My steadfast love, my deep and boundless to this I hope, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but through
for being faithful again. We're just thinking of Anthony when you say, 
to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. We know with 100% certainty that that's true. It's true for Him now. It'll be true for us one day, God. But with every breath that we have here, God, we long to follow you because we know that you're always going to be with us in the middle of a storm, in the middle of a fire, in the middle of a trial. It doesn't matter, God. You're going to be right there to comfort your people because you care, you see, and you're compassionate. God, so we just trust you again with everything that we have. in the midst of this horrible pain thank you for the encouragement that we can rely on you no matter what we love you in Jesus name Amen, Amen. God bless you guys this week we love you guys very very much thanks for worshiping with us this morning see you next week